U.S. companies have been hoarding labor, but for how much longer? Here's what matters. Live from New York City, I'm Lauren Goodwin, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everyone. It's the week of November 13th, 2023, and lately we've gotten a lot of information about the labor market, like the latest jobs report, and U.S. corporate health through earnings season. Today, we want to tie them together. Why? Well, both of these segments are closely tied to the health of the economy. But what ties them together today and what impacts the pace of the economic cycle is labor hoarding. By this, we mean that U.S. corporations have, on average, been maintaining higher headcount than we would otherwise expect to see at this late point in the economic cycle, especially in the U.S. This is really unusual. We've discussed on past episodes that this phenomenon of labor hoarding is likely a function of the post-pandemic era because companies found it difficult and expensive to hire back the workers that they had laid off during the pandemic. So when we're assessing the health and prospects for the labor market, we need to think about if this trend of labor hoarding will continue. And in order to do that, we need to spend some time on corporate health. First off, Julia, how do we see this in real time? We hear all sorts of stories about this happening anecdotally, but what's the data that we're looking at to verify those stories? Labor hoarding, when you look at it in the data, is mostly a payrolls story. We know that the labor market is the last thing to crack in the economic cycle, the last domino to fall, if you will. But job creation, as we see in non-farm payrolls, is higher than what we've seen at this stage in past cycles. And initial unemployment claims also look to be on the low side for this stage in the cycle. The way that we're going to structure our discussion today will be by taking two different sides of the coin. Julia is going to argue that the labor hoarding of U.S. corporations can and will continue, and that would be a bull case, an optimistic case for the labor market. I, on the other hand, will argue that this practice is unsustainable, that it's too difficult to last much longer, and that would be the bear case for the labor market, in line with our view that as the economy slows, the labor market will eventually feel some pressure. I'm not sure if I can win this argument, but I'm always happy to intellectually spar with you, Lauren. Okay, so then let's kick things off. Julia, I'll challenge you here. I'd like you to try and identify three, because great things come in threes, points of corporate health that suggest that corporations could keep a healthy bottom line and still keep this higher than average headcount that they've had in the past few quarters. No problem. I'll start by mentioning the cash buffer across the U.S. corporate sector. I want to mention this first because other angles of my argument are going to be sector-based. As you can imagine, this late in the economic cycle, things can look very different based on corporate sector. But as we've highlighted in our past research, cash buffers as a percentage of short-term liabilities for U.S. corporations have been strong, and not just in the past few years, that post-pandemic period, but also in the past decade or so. 
So when companies are facing pressure on the bottom line, when they're facing pressure on costs, including labor, having this cash buffer can reduce the immediate need to make human capital shifts. Okay, so companies have a general cash buffer, and that's been very helpful. But we're headed into a recession. And much like a household, I doubt that corporations would look negatively upon having that buffer on their balance sheet and maintaining it. Right. And this is why I need to provide two additional data points to support this argument. Regardless of the state of the balance sheet coming into this quarter, third quarter earnings results, which we've just concluded, are looking relatively strong. Earnings for all U.S.-listed companies overall grew 6.68% last quarter, led by consumer discretionary and industrial sectors, as well as communication services. We did see negative earnings growth in sectors like energy and materials, but as we know, these are quite cyclical and they've led earnings growth in previous quarters. Does anything concern or surprise you about these earning figures, maybe on a sector level in the latest Q3 2023 earnings season that we just had? Interestingly, we did see earnings contractions in sectors that would traditionally be identified as defensive, and I put that in air quotes. This would include consumer staples, healthcare, and real estate sectors. But let me zoom out to my last data point supporting the idea that U.S. corporations are still quite healthy and they could, in theory, continue to hoard labor resources. Sales growth continues to be strong. If we were seeing meaningful contractions on the revenue growth side, the sales side, but earnings were still holding up, it would suggest that cost management is what's supporting earnings. Instead, what we're seeing is both sales and earnings, so top line and bottom line, chugging along. And yes, revenues are slowing generally as we would expect in a late cycle setup, but they're still healthy. Okay. I think it's my turn now to argue against this, to argue that U.S. corporations may not be able to sustain their current human capital levels for much longer. And because I asked you to do it, Julia, I'm happy to also provide three data points so we can keep it even. And I want to start at the sustainable, in air quotes, portion of my argument. Nothing that you said, Julia, says much about the future. It's a bit backward looking. And I can't blame you for that because when we look at the forward looking indicators of corporate health, they are much more in favor of my argument. In the guidance for the fourth quarter of this year, 50%, that is half of US listed companies, revised their guidance down from where it already was, which wasn't necessarily optimistic. Only 15.4% of companies, by contrast, revised guidance up. Okay, I'm not sure I'm convinced by that data point, which is why I'll allow you two more. But on on this specific guidance data point, we know that corporate guidance is heavily managed. By this, I mean that corporations often ensure that their guidance is manageable or achievable. They guide investors to expect lower than they might be able to deliver so that management can achieve or exceed the guidance that they provided for that quarter. It's a little bit of a perverse incentive there. I will concede that this suggests that companies want to lower or to manage expectations. That's fair. But in my view, this is a little bit more of a dance that companies engage in with the market, more so than a real indicator of corporate strategy. And I completely agree with that, as you know well, but be that as it may, the guidance clearly points to a more difficult operating environment ahead. But 
to your point, let me move on to my second data point, which is a response to your mention that earnings growth has been resilient for the economy as a whole. It's material to note that earnings growth in the third quarter was driven by the sectors you mentioned, which include consumer discretionary and communication services. These are the sectors that are most closely associated with the Magnificent Seven, which has been a proxy for the artificial intelligence or AI boom. Well, here's the thing, though. Employment in those companies and in the artificial intelligence-related sector, it may well remain strong through this cycle. It supports my labor hoarding argument. But we've been discussing that we expect the integration of AI into business productivity won't affect the current cycle, probably. It takes time. And we're talking about the next few quarters rather than the next few years. That's that's fair enough. Although I feel like everything relating to AI seems to raise more questions than answers at this point. Lauren, can you share your third and final supporting point on why U.S. corporations will not be hoarding labor in the future? Well, when we look at other portions of the bottom line, other portions of how revenues and spending meet, we can get more visibility into whether cost pressures are building. And this quarter has been useful to look at capital expenditure or CapEx, which are not just costs, but investments. When these slow down, it's a great look into corporations' vision of the future and their bottom line. And in the third quarter, inflation-adjusted capital expenditures declined on a quarter-on-quarter basis. And this was not just on large-ticket items like equipment, but also on intangible assets like intellectual property, which are commonly tied to labor. I can't argue with you there. That's a great point. But generally speaking, this discussion is making me wonder if we're ignoring big swaths of the economy. Say more about that. What I mean by this is about half of private sector employment in the U.S. comes not from the massive corporations we've been discussing, because even small cap U.S. listed companies are objectively huge, but from small businesses. According to the U.S. Small Business Administration, there are over 33 million small businesses in the United States. These employ nearly 62 million Americans, amounting to over 46% of the private sector workforce. I feel like a politician when I rattle all of that off. So I'm wondering if limiting our discussion just to the listed space today, to these publicly listed corporate earnings reports, limits the conclusions that we can draw about how corporations and the labor market are interacting. I completely hear you there. And fortunately, we have plenty of data to give us insight into the sector of the economy. According to the CBIS Employment Index, in October of this year, 24% of small businesses surveyed decreased their staffing, although 18% did increase it. It's a smaller percentage, but only by a little bit. And let's add some context to that. Small business sentiment, as measured by the National Federation of Independent Businesses' Small Business Optimism Index, has actually deteriorated since 2018. Fascinatingly, sentiment among small businesses recovered quite quickly after COVID, but took a meaningful decline throughout 2021 and 2022. We are still at those levels today. And then if we extend the sentiment to employment decisions, we can see that the decline in the sentiment has reflected heavily in staffing choices. Small business employment has not recovered from the pandemic, and it's been very slightly declining ever since. I hate to take the point that you brought up and pivot it into victory to my own argument, but this suggests to me that both large corporations and small businesses are facing pressures on the employment front. 
I have to agree. And with financing costs sustained at a prohibitively expensive level right now, particularly for those smaller businesses and for businesses without access to public debt markets, we are talking about mounting cost pressures. Yes, the pandemic proved to us that it may be more expensive to hire workers back after a cycle concludes, but businesses are definitely beginning to face tough choices. To wrap here, I want to acknowledge that Julia and I have been spending a fair bit of time on the sort of big picture dynamics, but it might be helpful to also identify the key market themes of the day. And that ties the economic cycle and employment, which we've been talking about today, to the Fed. We have just started to see a slowdown in the labor market in real time. The October jobs report, which we mentioned earlier, but also continuing jobless claims and temporary unemployment data, they're starting to show the very early signs of a slowdown. And because of the impact of the Fed's interest rate hiking cycle, which takes time, usually 18 to 24 months, we're right about at month 20 right now. And so we expect this downward shift in employment to continue. It's what we typically see in a Fed rate hiking cycle. And a clear downshift in employment, if we did see it, would likely mean that the Fed is done raising interest rates for now. Of course, anything can happen, but this is the type of information we're looking at to drive decisions about what will happen in the financial markets or what has happened recently. Historically speaking, I think it's important to point out, once an employment slowdown begins, it tends to accelerate quickly. And so we're looking very closely at this information to determine what the economy and the markets will look like ahead. That brings us to our Portfolio Pause, a segment of the program where we share an investment idea. And today I want to focus on a simple theme that applies across asset classes when financial conditions are tightening. Costs are rising and the future of labor market strength is in question. And that is quality across securities. I noted earlier in our episode that even companies in traditionally defensive sectors like consumer staples and healthcare are not immune to cost pressures. We can carry this over into investment styles. It's not just about value versus growth. I think this is so important, what Julia is saying about it's not just about value versus growth equities, because that's often how investors are organized to think. But really, this question of quality is about looking across different styles. So in growth companies, we seek quality and profitability. It implies that these growth companies are either mature enough in their business model to naturally be profitable, or that the company is at a stage in its life where it's capable of investing heavily into future growth while still maintaining profitability. And there's a heavy implication of effective cost management here. And when the economy is slowing, it can be easy to seek the perceived safety on the fixed income side in areas like the money market or investment-grade corporate bonds. And these can be appropriate depending on an investor's risk tolerance, but there are other strategies available to manage overall portfolio quality. Active management can play a role here, but beyond this, pairing credit exposures, for example, pairing a higher credit quality asset class like investment-grade corporate bonds with a riskier credit quality asset class like high yield, this can enhance a portfolio's yield profile potential without sacrificing the quality lens. Coming up next, October inflation figures will be coming in hot or cool. We'll be back with our read. 
But that's it for today. We'll be back in two weeks for the next Market Matters. We're taking a little hiatus for the Thanksgiving U.S. holiday. But in the meantime, please remember to give us a like, follow, or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our views at newyorklifeinvestments.com and click the Insights tab. Until then, I'm Lauren Goodwin here with Julia Herman, and we will see you next time. Our podcast is produced by Will Tyus, and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which will vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment as at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. There is no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with the New York Life Insurance Company. Securities are distributed by Nylife Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. Nylife Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.